Welcome to the Jackson Hole Connection. Thank you for subscribing and downloading my first 10 episodes. I deeply appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedules to join me, Stephan Abrams, while I visit with worldly interesting people connected to Jackson Hole. Please go to my website, thejacksonholeconnection.com, to offer feedback, provide ideas, and even request to be on this show. When you have the time, please subscribe, share, rate, and review this podcast. My guest today is Joe Kelsey a retiree from mountain guiding, technical writing, and just enjoying Jackson Hole. Joe first visited the Tetons in 1964, and then finally around 1969, started setting up some summertime routes here in in the hole. He loves this area and has lots of great stories to tell you. But before we begin, I have a quick word from one of our sponsors. Is it okay to pair beer with Beef Wellington? Does Merlot go with Red Bull? Not sure how to make the perfect bourbon and Coke? Well, the team at the liquor store of Jackson Hole can answer all of these questions plus more. Stop in at 115 Buffalo Way, Jackson, Wyoming, or visit us at tlsofjh.com to experience service that will knock your socks off. The liquor store has been serving the Jackson Hole Valley for over 35 years. Joe, delighted to have you here today. We have known each other for a few years now since I met my wife and her dad has a cabin up in Black's Canyon. Thank you for being here today. Good to be here. Joe, tell me what brought you out here to Jackson Hole? Well, in 64, we came out here to climb the Grand Teton and were totally naive about such things and failed. And I was just here for a few weeks. Came back for a few weeks and other summers. In 1969, a bunch of us were gonna meet to go to the Wind Rivers. We did, we went to the Wind Rivers. I actually met a lady in the Wind Rivers and came back to Jackson Hole with her, which isn't the usual way you pick up chicks. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not usually how you pick up chicks, for sure. Did you uh, did you guys uh, stay together for quite some time? Um, we didn't stay together that long, but we're still close friends. Awesome. So you came out to climb the Grand with several friends, probably, what, from California? New York. New York. I live back east then. Uh, oh, okay. Terrific. And you said that you had a failed attempt. What caused the attempt a failure? Um, nobody was in shape. The people I was with didn't think you got in shape to go climb mountains. You dreamed big dreams. <laughs> and they'd carry you to the top or something. So then that was 64. And then what caused you to come back in 1969? Well, I'd heard of the Wind Rivers over the years, but I'd been climbing in Yosemite and the Sierra Nevada. Mm-hmm. Canada, the Canadian Rockies, the Bugaboos, the Cascades. And um, the name Wind River Mountains is intriguing enough. It's a bit mysterious. Yeah. Um, and um, But never got it together to go to the Wind Rivers. Okay. Where you just don't sleep at, um, in Jackson Hole and get up in the morning and in the Tetons. You just get up and go climb in the Wind Rivers. That's a ways in. The access is a little bit more remote than here oh, in the, the Teton The access range. is a little more remote. Yeah. So um, you backpack in and stay for several days and do various climbs in there. So for people to understand, validate this, the Wind River Range is Wyoming's largest mountain range. Is that correct? Yeah, and has the highest peak, Gannett Peak. Gannett Peak is the highest peak in the state of Wyoming. Yeah. And what is that uh, elevation? 13,804. Okay. And of all the years that you went to the Wind Rivers, over time, you wrote a few books about the Wind River Range as well, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote a guidebook. The first edition came out in 1981, the second in 1994, and the third edition in 2013. What changes 
one addition from one, two, and three, are the mountains changing that much? Not a bit. Okay. <laughs> the um, more climbs get done, people write up climbs for climbing journals. So there, there are new routes to include. I myself, of course, keep doing new routes. So I have better write-ups than in the past. And mistakes happen. I mean, guidebooks are not infallible. So you edit out some mistakes, correct some or, mistakes, you know, I should change, say. Change difficulty ratings. Oh, okay. All right. I'm, I'm not Uh-oh. a climber, so uh, to me that's all of a foreign language. But I understand Uh-oh. it, the difficulty ratings. I understand what you're saying. To put it another way, in the 1981 edition, there were no pictures at all. Uh-huh. It was a little book in theory you could put in your pocket, but you'd have to have a weird pocket to put it in. <laughs> The 1994 edition had black and white pictures, and the 2013 has colored. Ooh, you stepped it up several times. Yeah. <laughs> What's the title of the book? Climbing and Hiking in the Wind River Mountains. Okay. And how did this mountain range get its name? Of course, the mountains got its name from the Wind River, and the Wind River presumably got its name because the river sounded like the wind. Ah, okay. And what about the winds because you've spent so much time there nowadays that keeps drawing you over there. I like wide open spaces. The obvious thing to do is compare the wind rivers to the Tetons mm-hmm. and I don't mind to badmouth don't mean to badmouth the Tetons since here's where I live and my friends like it. The Tetons tend to be kind of a little bit claustrophobic. You go up canyons and the wind rivers is just wide open meadows and lakes and I like seeing 100 miles of sky. And in the Wind River Range, that's what you see. You yeah. look up and it's just sky. Yeah. Okay. So it, as a generalization. Sounds magnificent. <clears throat> it probably doesn't sound like serious mountaineering, but maybe I'm not a serious mountaineer. <laughs> well, I, I don't know about that. We are talking about Mother Nature, where you never know what the conditions will be. Mm-hmm. You leave your house and it's sunny and nice and warm, and a few days later you're in the Wind River Range and... You could wake up with snow on you. I've done that many a time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you have. So during your time here, you became a guide with Exum Mountain Guides? Yeah. Uh-huh. And how many years did you guide with Exum Mountain Guides? Oh, a little over 20. All right. So during that 20 years of guiding, did you ever have a, a near-death experience? Um, Not while guiding. Okay. But while enjoying things on your own, you had a near-death experience? Yeah. I don't know how near, but... Um, Tell me about it. Well, one was pulling a large block off. By large, I'd say maybe eight feet high, four feet wide, and a foot thick, that we had our um, belay anchors behind. I let a pitch, put my anchors behind the block as one tends to do. You figure a block that big is probably part of the mountain. Started leading the next pitch, and put my hands in the crack behind the thing, and it, it tipped over. My belayer's first notion was that the anchors had fallen out, which they did. Didn't really have time to consider a near-death experience. I was more, what's going on? And um, the block went over, hit the ledge, and cut the rope exactly at the midpoint, which is enough to make you superstitious. <laughs> and then the block went on down to the ground, and the belayer and I were on the ledge, and then we realized what a awful thing had happened. Did you guys continue your climb or no, go down? No, because with the rope cut, we had to rappel off. Okay. Having the rope cut at the exact midpoint actually means you could do maximum rappelling with a cut rope. 
Okay. Because you could tie it right together at the midpoint. Huh. I think I would have made Hershey's out of my pants if that happened to me. Well, I didn't look. (laughs) (laughs) As I say, it happened so quick and was so weird that hardly had time. Mm -hmm. I suppose the other, if you want to call it near-death experience, I had was near the summit of Shark's Nose, which looks like a shark's nose from one direction, but actually in reality is three separate pinnacles, and you have to go between them to get to the top from a couple of routes. Mm -hmm. And... In fact, you had to go from the summit we came out to to the other ones to get off. So when the lightning came, when it started lightning, we didn't have much choice. I always say it was the hardest pitch I let. It wasn't very steep. It was covered with lichen. So I kept worrying about my feet sticking, and I couldn't get any protection in the crack. And my belayer kept me up to date on the state of his hair standing on end and buzzing in the rock and all. That was the most scared I've been, I think. Because so, I had time to get scared. So there was a lightning storm around you at this time? Yeah. And it caused your belay partner's hair to stand up? Yeah. Just the electricity yeah. that was being created? Yeah. yeah, which is a standard thing when you're exposed to lightning in the mountains. Okay. Huh. I've never had that experience. It's fascinating. Well, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I've also had things like that happen on Pingora and Wolfshead, which are two other peaks in the Circuit of Towers. And is the cir- where's the Circuit of Towers? Southern Wind Rivers. Southern Wind it's Rivers. It's the, ro- the rock climbing area in the Wind Rivers. Okay. Which is why we went there in the first place. We were rock climbers. How many square miles does the Wind River Range cover? I'd say 80 miles long mm-hmm. and 20 miles wide. Okay. And I refuse to do the arithmetic. Okay. I'd get the decimal point wrong. <laughs> And have, do you feel that you've covered most of that territory? No. Okay. I'd be really disappointed if I had. It's always nice to wonder what's over the next ridge. Oh, yeah. I've I, spent a lot of time in places like the Circuit of the Towers mm-hmm. and some places I haven't been to. Things to look forward to. I'm not sure I can look forward anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so looking back at you being here in Jackson Hole in, in 1969, what was this community like coming out oh. here uh, when you started being here more in 1969? Oh, brother. <laughs> I could have a political slant in several directions. Um, people like me were afraid to go in the stagecoach bar. Okay. <laughs> and what was a person like you like? I don't think I've changed much, but this... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have long hair? Did you well, stink? It... Didn't look like a cowboy? I didn't look like a cowboy. Okay. And why would you not want to go into the stagecoach bar back then not looking like a cowboy? We'd heard bad things. Okay. (laughs) Did anything bad ever happen to you at the stagecoach bar? No. Okay. So you were able to drink there? Yeah. All right. Once we got up our courage to go in there, (laughs) it turned out to be a nice place. All right. (laughs) And the stagecoach bar is right down the street from where you live in Black's Canyon. You have a cabin there, correct? Right. Uh Uh-huh. And how long have you had your cabin? Since 73. Did you build the cabin? Did not build it. Um, Who originally built it and when? I think all four cabins were built in in the late 50s. Okay. The Forest Service, the, it's on Forest Service land. Mm-hmm. So that we own the cabin and then pay the Forest Service a fee for, a yearly fee for having our cabin on the land. This sounds luxurious. Oh, yeah. It's a... <laughs> Didn't have electricity then and doesn't have electricity now. And um, 
So I haven't missed it particularly. Mm-hmm. Wood stove. Outhouse. Outhouse. Get water from the creek. Water from the creek. Do you still get water from the creek? Um, for most things, I, I have. I buy drinking water for. Okay. Mostly for the sake of my guests and not for me. I figure I'm hopeless that way. <laughs> well, it's nice of uh-huh. you to think of your guests to where they don't get giardia out of the creek. Yeah. Yeah. I um, vowed to never have a cell phone and never have a computer inside that cabin. So you have you do not own well, a cell phone? Well, I, I vowed that. And then during the ni- 90s, Exum wouldn't give me an assignment unless I got a cell phone. So. <laughs> do you still guide for Exum? No, I retired several years ago. Okay. I couldn't keep up with the clients anymore. Oh, okay. <laughs> so in the 90s, you had to give in a little bit, get a cell phone so you could still be called. I used to drive down to Hungry Jack's General Store in Wilson, which had a pay phone. Uh-huh. Was it a dime then? A dime. Yeah. All right. And I actually had a cell f- or a pay phone there mm-hmm. outside. And I, if I didn't, if I worked the day before, I could get my assignment. Before I left work. Mm-hmm. But if I didn't, I had to drive down to Hungry Jack's and call up there. But if an hour later they decided they had an assignment for me, they didn't know how to get in touch with me. And one of the office people once actually had to drive up there at 10 at night to get me. She'd heard bad things about getting lost in Black Canyon. And that seems a little tough. There's a road. It's not paved. You make a lot of turns going in there. Okay. I she guess found I'm, me fine, but she was intimidated. I guess I'm a little used to it at this point. Uh, driving up in there. Looking for it for the first time at night. It would be a little intimidating. There's no street lights for sure. I can see where that would be tough. Uh, yeah. What made you buy the cabin there? Um, this woman who I met in the Wind Rivers and came back with, we didn't end up together, but maybe better than that, she, she found the cabin. Okay. A few years before. Uh-huh. She had it for one year and then moved back to Jackson Hole, sold the cabin to her brother, who was from back east. He had it for a few years and realized he wasn't using it enough. And in fact, as he came out west, he'd go to the Wind Rivers instead and not come on to Jackson. Hmm. And one winter he asked her if, asked my friend if she knew anybody that might be interested. Mm-hmm. And she asked me first, and I got on the phone instantly and said, don't ask anybody else. You're, you're pretty excited about it. Yeah. And it, it was about what I could afford at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now you've had it for, gosh, several decades. 45 years, I uh-huh. think. Okay. The cabin, with it being in, in a rural area, have you had a few animals visit, visit you there? The moose love Black Canyon. Do they? Can they be troublesome? They could be intimidating. It's a little moose. I spent one winter there around 78 or 79. Okay. Which was a bad mistake. It was the coldest winter ever. And the moose had me scared enough that if I didn't get home by dark, I'd stay at somebody else's house. Oh, really? Because a couple of times, the do- I, my dogs freaked out. And then I looked around with a headlamp, and there was a cow and calf looking at me. That would be a bit intimidating. That'd be a big face look, staring at you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why was that winter... What made it feel as that winter that you stayed there the coldest winter ever? Oh, I, I think I think it was. Oh. <laughs> How cold did it get that winter? Oh, 45 below a few times. And so your yeah. heaters that kick must have been a little comfortable there. 
Oh, it was on, it was survival. I didn't do anything else that winter. Okay. I was working on the guidebook actually, but my uh, surviving there was kind of a full time job. You came out here to climb with some friends from the East Coast, mm-hmm. and later on you ended up moving to California. But mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. year you still came out to Jackson Hole. Yes, I have. Yeah. What is is there something special about this place that? caused you to continue coming out here year over year yeah what is that i'm trying to say something unique that everybody else doesn't say um the people i found a better group of people here than i have in other small mountain communities do you think that there's something about this place that attracts good people yeah i couldn't tell you what no a tradition of attracting good people maybe yeah it does it does i know a People I know that go to other places like Moab or um, Prescott or during the winter all say they've never found a bunch of friends like here. I wonder if that has something to do with because Jackson Hole has always been such a remote area that you had to rely on people to survive in this place. Even in the Uh, summertime, you had to rely on other people to survive even when people were homesteading. Would you, could you relate to that or validate that at all? I've never thought of it that way, and I'm sure you're right. And I saw Shane this summer again. Oh, did you? <laughs> yeah. Were you, when was Shane filmed out here? 52. Okay. I think I Googled it after I saw the movie. And, all right. And that took place in what around the late 1800s, I suppose. Yeah, but, I think it was all about but, the early settlement out here. And I'm being sort of facetious about saying Shane set the, the pattern, but. Mm, maybe. I, I think, um, yeah, there, there's certainly an attraction to this place that gets in your bones. And when it's in there, it doesn't leave. It gets pretty deep in the bones. <laughs> and I have found that meeting and talking to some of the people that live out here are so interesting. Uh, people such as yourself and the stories that you can hear and learn about people is remarkable out here and people are willing to open up where i think when you live in other places you don't have the openness and the willingness and i think that's because we can be connected very easily out here. Right. Um, whether it's yeah. if you are out here in the winter and you want to ski or snowmobile and if you're in the summer it's fishing hiking climbing kayaking whitewater rafting whatever it is you can find people to connect with and um, you can find people to connect with which is is quite unique and special. And also to add on top of that, I would, to me, Exum was a big factor in that. How so? Because that was a great brotherhood of climbers. Okay. And over the years, have you lost some of that brotherhood of climbers due to accidents? No, more to the times changing. Okay. There's certainly been been accidents. Mm -hmm. And I certainly had a lot more friends back then than I have my age now. And who started Exum Mountain Guides? Well, Paul Petzold started the guide service, arguably in 1924. A woman who works in the Exum office, Kimberly Guile, is doing a book on the history of Exum. Okay. And did a presentation this summer at the Climbers Ranch where she did a slideshow, so I'm vaguely up to date on that. Petzold started in 1924, and then in 1931, Glenn Exum joined him and made the famous first ascent of the Exum Ridge on the Grand. And that's when he jumped? Yes. Okay. <laughs> he jumped. Did you ever meet those guys, Paul Petzl? Or oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What type of personality do those guys have? 
absolutely opposite from each other. Really? Yeah. Um, I don't think I'm bad-mouthing anybody when I said it. Petzl was a son of a bitch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> kind of a hard-drinking Idaho guy mm-hmm. who um, would get in bar fights and all, was gruff, and, and Exum was the ultimate gentleman. Hmm. That's very nice to say. And what do you recall of him that he was the ultimate gentleman? Very gentle way of talking. I only started working his last year. Okay. So I didn't really know him. But he really stood behind his guides and and had you convinced you were the greatest climber in the world and introduced the guide to the clients as the greatest climber in the world. And it really mattered to him that we did well. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that offered some confidence to you as you're taking other people up rock sides of mountains. Yeah, and when you start guiding, you really need that confidence. Mm -hmm. Did you ever question that confidence for yourself? Oh, yeah. I think you'd be pretty shallow if you didn't. (laughs) (laughs) And how did you overcome that questioning your own confidence? Maybe because the clients believe in you, Hmm. whether they should or not. Okay. (laughs) Well, I hope they Um, believe in you. You uh, have a big responsibility. Yeah. Now that I've retired, I can't believe that we didn't get crushed by that responsibility. Maybe you did not allow that responsibility to overcome your daily thinking because yeah you get involved in the daily in the daily thinking and you it's there it's in the back of your mind but what you allowed to be in the forefront of your mind was the fun that you could have and the fun that your clients could have and let's go out and be thoughtful be respectful of the mountains and have some great times you know it all yeah you oh i don't know if i know it all <laughs> i mean you got it just right i i don't know if i know it all at all. um so of all those years with exum there has been many different search and rescue operations here in the Tetons and in the Wind River Range. Have you ever been a part of helping with some search and rescue operations? Yeah, and you're not going to, what you're picturing right now isn't the one I got involved in. Okay. In the Tetons. I was taking a usual group of clients up to the lower saddle to climb the Grand, and we stopped for lunch in Garnet Canyon. And my usual place to stop for lunch There were two guys lying in the trail, and um, two blonde, healthy-looking young men. And I thought, well, they're taking a nap in an odd place. We'll tiptoe around them. Went around the bend and stopped to have lunch. Just about when we put our packs down, a young woman came running along, and she said, did you pass two guys on the trail? And I thought, pass, walk past two people, and I said no. And she said, you mean there aren't two guys passed out on the trail? And I said, oh, them. (laughs) Anyway, it turned out they'd eaten mushrooms. Uh Uh-oh. Probably not the right type. Not the right kind. Okay. And our climbing ranger later figured out what they'd eaten and what they thought they were eating. Mm -hmm. And it turned out they were um, Mormon guys from Salt Lake who'd never even had caffeine. Well, anyway, I went back to them, and one guy guy passed out, one guy was trying to throw up and couldn't. Mm -hmm. And I said, what's going on? And he said, looked at his buddy and said, it was his idea. He said he knew mushrooms. <laughs> and just as I, I was wondering how to handle a situation, I looked up and two climbing rangers were coming along. Okay. And they took it from there? Yeah. I mean, I, I helped them. And we loaded, they called a helicopter and we loaded them into a helicopter. And one interesting thing about it, clients always like it when guides do things like that. Like I felt they were paying good money to have me take them up the Grand, and here I was 
ignoring them in favor of uh, some guys that had foolishly eaten mushrooms. Well, maybe they appreciated the fact that you had yeah. the kindness to, to help somebody out in need. Yeah. It turns out that clients really like feeling part of the mountaineering community. How so? Well, especially when I first started guiding in the Wind Rivers, where you're camping and backpacking and cooking together. I always thought that um, the guides do all the work. You people just relax. They wanted to help. Even if you just sent them to get water, they felt they were part of it. And they really liked being part of the mountaineering community of other climbers that were in the Cirque of the Towers, that were not part of the guiding thing. I think intuitively people as a whole want to be a part of something. Yes. And when they're out of their natural environment and put into an unusual environment and see a leader such as their guide doing something, they feel that they can be attached to that leader and be a part of something. Yep. The worst thing that happens in guiding is the Grand Teton brings out the worst, of course. People want to get to the top, get their certificate, and go back and have a picture of the Grand on their office wall. Oh, is there a printing press at the top of the Grand that hands out, puts out certificates? They used to hand them out at the bottom. Okay. I think they stopped doing that. <laughs> I, had a, I had a friend who convinced me that we could do the Grand from car to car all in one trip. And... We made it up to the lower saddle, and he looked at me and said, I don't feel very good. I said, okay, what's wrong? He said, I just don't feel good. I've been up the Grand several times, and I'm just not feeling good, so I'm not going to do it. I said, okay, and I haven't been up since. I've been up the lower saddle several times since then, but well, I've never made the opportunity to go That's a day's work. Up. Yeah, car to car is a day's work for sure, even to the lower saddle Yeah, is, is a haul. Um, but that was in my hiking days when – I was in a little bit better shape. Now I used I, to love it when people get to the top of the Grand and look around and say, what else is fun to climb? Oh. <laughs> so many people didn't even look around. Hmm. I've been uh, up the middle Teton, uh, yeah, uh-huh. and that was, I didn't want to leave the top of it. Yeah. That, it was spectacular uh, up there. You feel like you're on top of the world, even though I wasn't, but you still feel like it. Yeah. Certainly. Well, you should have continued. <laughs> No, I, th- I think that was enough for me, just doing a little scramble. Um, but what about the in the Wind River Range? Have you been a part of a search and rescue adventure there? Yeah, um, two come to mind. One was a complicated one. In March, around 74 or so, we tried skiing into Titcomb Basin, mm-hmm. a bunch of eastern guys. And there were two cars full of us that never quite connected. Let's see, our group was... Our group of five, um, one of the guys got pulmonary edema and went into a coma. That's a big deal. So, yeah. And um, and how many miles out were you at that point? Maybe 10, 8 or 10. And how did you, what, what well, happened then? He, um, the second day he was kind of not well, sort of wheezing. And um, two of us thought we'd better turn around for his sake. And the other two didn't want to. So the two of us said, we're turning around and... The four of us turned around. That night he went into a coma. I had just read, by coincidence, the American Alpine Journal had an article about pulmonary edema that year, which was sort of a new disease, or a new, newly named, recognized disease at that point. Mm-hmm. And the article said that nobody had ever gotten pulmonary edema, I think, below 11,000 feet. Until that And we experience? were at 10.5. Okay. And I thought, well, maybe it's not pulmonary edema, because you can't get it that low. It turns out that this guy... Um, Broke the record, which has been broken many times since, if you want to call it a record. Um, 
Not the record I'd want to break. No. Yeah. He went into a coma and was making horrible noises that I'm not going to try doing right, <laughs> right here all night. Okay. And um, which was nerve-wracking, but when he stopped making the noises, it was even worse because I thought maybe he stopped breathing. In the morning, two of us stayed with him in the tent and two skied out. And that evening, a bunch of snowmobilers came in who were really glad to be able to get back there because they weren't allowed in the wilderness otherwise. Uh-huh. They'd always wanted to go past <laughs> that wilderness boundary. And they got in there, I think it was 15 below. Ooh. And here was this guy in a coma, 10 o'clock at night. And we tried making a sled out of pack frames and skis and whatever, which wouldn't work at all. And they start pulling him and snow is getting thrown in his face. And I said, no, no, this is, you're gonna kill him pulling him eight or 10 miles out. So they skied out and a helicopter was there before dawn in the morning. I thought I want everything ready when the helicopter comes. And I was just sort of getting my boots on when it showed up. Mm-hmm. Took him to St. John's. When the medical profession was a little bit, I don't wanna say cruder, but uh, less sophisticated than mm-hmm. now. And when nobody knew what pulmonary edema was. And they put Alan in ICU in his coma. And there were three beds, head to toe or whatever, in the ICU. Al was in the middle one. On one side was an old country and western singer who'd been singing at the Warder Cowboy, who'd had his 18th heart attack, or whatever. And on the other side was a guy who'd broken both femurs. And afterward, he told us, having Al in the ICU was the best thing that happened to him all winter. (laughs) And um, we were told that he was in a coma for two or three days there. We were told to expect brain damage. The second or third day, whatever it was, he started making noises, which he told us afterward was him telling the nurses to get the goddamn tubes out of him. <laughs> so everybody was ready for brain damage, and on the third morning, the nurses were just changing their shift at 6 a.m. or 7 a.m. or it was, and Al set up one cock a doodle doo. <laughs> and the nurses thought this was, that was the worst. He really said cock a doodle doo? Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> He was a big fan of old movies, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields. Uh-huh. And he spent the whole day just um, recreating movies with the country and western singer on the verge of another heart attack laughing and the guy with the broken femur. So they had to, after a day or so, they had to get Al out of the ICU just to save the other guy. He was being too much disruptive to the other patients. Yeah. <laughs> too funny. Well, that was good thinking not to let the snowmobilers drag the guy out of there. It was pretty obvious. Okay. Do you think they were prepared to make that decision or? No, because they. They were just excited they, to pull the guy. Yeah, they just thought they were doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. I think they, they were decent people and um, they didn't want to say, oh, we can't do this or mm-hmm. we're cold and scared, whatever. So you mentioned the wilderness boundary. Mm-hmm. Snowmobiles are not allowed back there. Yeah, they, no, they, get, they got special permission, of course, from the Forest Service. Yeah, no motorized vehicles unless right. special permission is granted. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which that was a unique experience which needed to be granted everything was done right that way yeah i think sure do you recall some other guiding experiences where the conditions were changing to be unfavorable and maybe you had to calm down some clients and get their mind in the right place to be able to finish doing the guide i'll tell the exact opposite of that happened in the wind rivers okay um wolf's head is this ridge with a whole bunch of pinnacles on it Mm -hmm. it's like being an amusement park or something 
and you start along this east ridge of Wolfset, and you just don't start rappelling off because you're going along this ridge. A lot of lightning hits these pinnacles. I had two clients that turned out to be a father and a daughter. We got in a lightning storm and as best we could sat down a chimney and things like that and um, they were really good about it. They were calm and I said we're going to sit here for a bit and at one point I tried to talk like a in a deep bass voice and calming influence like a guy does. And I'd totally forgotten to put uh, any clothing on so I was shivering. My teeth were chattering as I was talking in my calm reassuring voice. And then we got to the summit and you rappel down the other side. Mm -hmm. And I said, there's no picture taking, no lunch, no nothing. I'm going to blaze you to the summit and you're just going to rappel right off the backside. And while I was there, the um, I heard the camera click and the young woman was taking my picture. And later on, Exum wanted a picture of all the guides out of a gallery looking gallant or courageous or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I gave them that picture. They didn't realize that looking courageous was... <laughs> The same as looking really scared. <laughs> well, I guess there's always different interpretations of a picture. Yeah. The one from the photographer and the one from the person whose picture's being taken. You're right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so oh. you spent so many hours in the mountains. What do you feel that other people can learn from you of how to respect the mountains? What words of thought, words of wisdom can you share with people? Well, the mountains make you feel small and humble. Why so? Well, because if you feel arrogant, you don't last long. They'll, they'll eat you alive, the mountains, with arrogance? Yeah. Okay. Maybe I could tell you, say you feel like wildlife. Wildlife is all vulnerable to, depending on what the wildlife is, all sorts of lightning and wind and cold. and. That makes sense. And it's a good feeling. How does it make you feel being out in the mountains? You mean wildlife-wise? or I feel at home, mm -hmm. which doesn't mean you're arrogant or feel that you're blessed or anything like that. You just... It's a place where you want to be. Yeah. Or where you should be. Should be. Yeah. I look forward to being back there someday. Well, I've, I've yet to experience the winds. We'll do it. All right. We'll go for a hike. Sounds good. Joe, thank you for coming today. Well, thank you. This is fun. And you wrote a few books about the winds. How can people find your book? I think they'll... All... The local bookstores. Okay. Is it on Amazon, too? On Amazon. All right. I was going to put in a plug for the local bookstores first. I like the local bookstores. Yeah. I mean, the, uh, Teton Mountaineering and Skinny Skis have the guidebook. Uh-huh. And then I wrote another book a few years ago that's the opposite of a guidebook, Personal Reminiscences. What's the title of that book? A Place in Which to Search. Okay. Joe, thanks for being here today. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you. Jackson Hole Marketplace, the small market in Jackson Hole with a huge reach. Stop in for hot coffee and homemade breakfast in the morning, awesome lunches in the afternoon, and finish the day with a soft serve ice cream and a six pack of beer. Need catering for breakfast or lunch? They can do it and deliver for free. Want to know more? Visit jhmarketplace.com. Thank you everyone for tuning in today to the Jackson Hole Connection. I hope you have enjoyed listening and can take away a little nugget about life. I'm always looking for fun guests who have a connection to Jackson Hole. Know of someone who would be great to be on the show? Please send me an email to connect at thejacksonholeconnection.com. Please subscribe, rate, and review the Jackson Hole Connection on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. 
A special shout out to my friend Luke Taylor for producing and providing the tunes for this podcast. Y'all come back again. You hear?